Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. NBC Sports, Football Morning and American columnist Peter King. What do you think about the Chase Thomas podcast? I like to plug the Chase Thomas podcast. Listen to Chase Thomas. You'll be a smarter sports fan and obviously a much better human being. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Matlana, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ up there in New York City. Fangraph Zone. John Taylor is here. Are you wearing a Major League t-shirt? What is yes, that, John? Yes, I am, uh, mm-hmm. from the good folks at Baseballism. There you go. A, a quality merchandise provider. I like it. What is that? Your What's your favorite baseball shirt? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, probably either the Santurce Cangrejeros. Wow, why did mm. that take so much work? Uh, shirt that I got from Ebbets Field or... Ooh, that's a good one. I I mean, it's not a baseball shirt, but I got a shirt uh, from Amoeba Music, the legendary Bay Area and Los Angeles-based music retailer that sells records and CDs and DVDs and everything. Uh, during the pandemic that had the Amoeba Music, uh, it, the Dodgers logo, but with Amoeba Music. Uh, mm. Really big fan of that one. But I think my the my favorite baseball shirt, the one I've kept for forever and that I will never, ever let go of, my Nick Johnson Washington Nationals player jersey that I bought probably in 2006, mm-hmm. 2005, whenever it was exactly he was on the Nationals. That is my go-to shirt when I go to a Nationals game, if I ever go to a Nationals game, uh, which I haven't actually done in quite a bit. But I, for me, the Nationals are always going to be the team of guys. Like, they, they were, you know, from their very inception, because I was, was 18 when the Nationals uh, moved from Montreal to D.C., I, so I got to be there for their inaugural season when I was a high school senior. Um, and it was just guys. It was guys all the way down, because obviously that was, you know, the the last Expos teams were not particularly star-studded. The first several years of the Nationals were not particularly star-studded. So you really got used to having guys like Nick Johnson to root for, Ryan Church, or, uh, you know, the immortal Chiron Martise, Chad Cordero. Um, I I could do this for a while. It's really kind of sad. Where's David Rothman? You need him. 
Yeah, this is at some point you got to get Roth on here and just have a full hour of like, let's just talk about guys and like just name your guys. Mm-hmm. But um, that's probably my favorite baseball shirt that I own. I have, a, I mean, I in terms of overall stuff, like my favorite baseball thing that I probably own is either my Hall of Fame Pedro Martinez jersey or a 2004 Road Away or sorry, 2004 Gray Road Red Sox Nomar Garcia Parra jersey that I got six months before he was traded and that I still wear when I get an opportunity. I wore it to a Red Sox-White Sox game uh, two years ago now. That was really fun. So, yeah, I think I think those are my favorites. I'm always on the lookout for more baseball tees, though. I, I, I have to basically tell myself not to go on Ebbets Field pretty much ever because um, <laughs> I whoop $400, not 400 like 200 bucks will just disappear before I even realize it. Um yeah, I, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs in particular. Um, I, I really like the historical baseball stuff that they do. But yeah, there you got go. The, got the little major league. You always love the major league thing. I wore this uh, to, I believe, to at least I've worn this to at least one baseball game. And the looks you get from people when they recognize it are always a lot of fun. There you go. I would also recommend any Guardians fans out there. Like, if I were a Guardians fan, uh, and I know obviously the name change uh, somewhat complicates a little bit, but. 100% chance I have either a Rick Vaughn jersey, a Pedro Serrano jersey, or a, uh, what was the name of the character played by, uh, uh, Chelsea Ross, um, uh, Eddie Harris, the, okay. the junk baller, the spitballer, mm-hmm. um, definitely one of those, I think, or, or the, the problem I think with Willie Mays Hayes is you have to get the entire name on the back, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because as we know, you know, hit like Mays, run like Hayes, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think this I think this one this one's way up there in terms of the conversation. There you go. Uh, speaking of conversation, John Taylor, yes. we got to kick things off with our favorite segment now. During the take graphs, it's time for take graphs, John Taylor. What is your take graphs take of the week? This is so much fun. I love this. I I love that we just get this opportunity just to be like perpetually like, oh, this is this is this is a problem. This is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, there's part of me that wants to be like the Orioles are the best team in the AL East, and just like walk away from the mic and not say anything more. But run with like, this, John. The Orioles are the best team in the AL East. I can't even run with it because the pitching's not there, and that and that's mm. the biggest problem for them right now. The hitting is there. The bullpen is very good. Yenier Cano, who is one of the pieces they got in the Jorge Lopez trade, and who Ben Clemens wrote a brief piece about on Fangraphs uh, for Wednesday. Uh, super so far. Obviously, Felix Bautista, the awesome closer they have, but. I mean, when you're there's there's just too much Kyle Gibson right now for me to feel mm. comfortable with the Orioles. Too much like Tyler Wells, who didn't pitch poorly today against the against the Red Sox. He held them to two runs and five and two thirds against a, a pretty good offense. I you know I, I don't know how most. I mean, you, you'd have to ask Orioles fans, I think. But I, I know if I were an Orioles fan, I don't feel too great about a rotation that is the way it is, particularly with. And I'm not saying this is going to be the case forever, but particularly with Grayson Rodriguez looking the way he has, which is to say fine overall um all right here's my take i think the twins are going to win the al central in a walk i don't think this is close Ooh. and i don't say that so much because i think the twins are a juggernaut they're not they're 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 fine the rest of the al central is a garbage fire <laughs> cleveland barely above it, and then three teams in chicago kansas city and detroit that are abominably bad i think kansas city's already been like kansas city and oakland have already been eliminated from postseason contention by our odds uh the postseason odds for the Royals are 0.6%. Uh, the only teams lower are the Nationals, A's, Reds, and Rockies. 
Can you mm. guess which of those teams has already achieved a 0.0% chance of making the postseason? Oakland. The Rockies. Oh! The Colorado Rockies at 8 and 18, six games back in the National League West, projected to finish 62 and 100. We have officially given 0.0% <laughs> chance of making the postseason. Mission Granted, accomplished. With regards to Nationals and the A's, 0.1 isn't a uh, whole lot better. Uh, it's basically, it, it's a, for all intents and purposes, a rounding error. But officially, the dreaded double zero, the F, the D minus, <laughs> as it were. Well, I guess the point one is the D minus, a.k.a. the gentleman's F. Mm-hmm. The straight F just goes to the Rockies. But to, to get back to my AL Central thing, look, if I want to expand this take, even that just like I think the Twins are the best team in the AL Central and it's not even close, just abolish the AL Central at this point. Mm. What is the point of this division? Serious, what is the point of this division? There are fully two. Uh, let's okay, we'll start answer. from the top. I'll, 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 I'll just do it. The Twins are a legitimate team. They've got a good lineup, a good pitching staff, a pretty okay bullpen. They finally beat the Yankees in a season series for the first time in 22 years. Mm-hmm. Not finally. a postseason series, though. Not a postseason series. Just the regular season, the yeah. six games that those teams play, or seven, or I guess it varies years, year to year. They finally finished 500 or better in his in a regular season series against the Yankees. Finally, it mm-hmm. finally happened. Uh, I think they're a legitimately good team. And I think, you know, we'll see what the season holds for them, but that's a team where you would, once you throw them into the playoff mix, you're like, okay, you can maybe make some noise. I, I look, I, we talk about the guardians on and off and I just continually vacillate between them being just pointless, their, their existence being pointless. And then toward the end of last year when they got super hot and they're like, okay, this team's actually kind of cool. They're doing something interesting and different. No, man, it's just more of the same. This team just can't hit. They just cannot hit. There is no offense to be found on the Guardians. And while part of that is, you know, there's some early slumps, I think, just on the part of, uh, I guess Jose Ramirez has been, he hasn't been his usual self, let's just call it that. But regardless, like, you you look at the Guardians right now, there are three regulars with a WRC plus above 100. I'm sorry, there are two regulars with a WRC plus above 100. Jose Ramirez and Mike Zanino. Look, I don't think that Stephen Kwan and Andres Jimenez and uh, Josh Bell and maybe Josh Naylor, I'm not 100% sure on that one, are going to be below league average hitters for the rest of the season. That doesn't strike me as super likely. But even if they get above that, and I think Ahmed Rosario is probably close-ish to league average, so that's another decent bat. But even if you get, let, let's bump them all up to a 110 WRC+, plus, you're still dealing with a hole in center field with Miles Straw, a hole in right field with Oscar Gonzalez, a hole... Uh, I, I don't expect Mike Zanino, I don't think anyone else expects Mike Zanino to keep up a 142 WRC plus going forward. That's probably not going to happen. Like, it, what's funny about this too is is this is a team where I think if you would have asked people in advance, hey, which team do you think is going to benefit the most from the absence of defensive shifts and teams being forced to play straight up on the infield, you probably would have guessed, well, the team that makes a ton of contact, a.k.a. the Cleveland Guardians. You know, mm-hmm. the team that has made its bones on contact. And Granted, that is still I you know that is still the case you know when you look at uh, when you look at our plate discipline stats in particular sorted by team uh, by contact rate Cleveland is tied for second in the majors with Toronto. Here's another fun quiz: Who hmm. is number one in the major leagues in contact rate uh, as of the stats from Wednesday morning? So not 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 including today's games. Hmm, Brewers. Nope, I'll give you one more guess because I really don't think there's any chance you get this because I, I wouldn't have guessed it in a thousand years. Oh, so they're bad. Yes. Um, I'm going to say Reds. The Washington Nationals. Oh! The best contact rate in the major leagues and on top of that, the lowest swinging strike rate in the major leagues. Hmm. 
but still, Cleveland is top three, uh, is second in contact rate, third in swing strike rate. Arizona also very high up there, which I, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, obviously, contact rate doesn't tell everything because I think there are obviously some, some particular things you have to look at. In particular, this little thing we call isolated power, which is just a neat little stat that basically adds up all your extra base hits and, you know, essentially determine, gives you an average base number a la batting average or OBP to mark essentially how much power you have. Cleveland ranks 27th in that category with a 114 batting average, with a 114 isolated power. By the way, fun fact: Washington number one in contact, dead last in isolated power. There's a lot of singles and slap hitting going on in DC. <laughs> Similarly, uh, obviously, it is still early in the season. You know, presumably a little too early to start making any real hay of this. But by barrel rate, Cleveland is second to last in the majors at 4%. Washington, again, dead last. Mm-hmm. By hard hit rate, Cleveland is 27th in the majors at 33.3%. By just simple sheer batting average, Cleveland, and and this is this is where Cleveland should be excelling. They have a two twenty eight batting average right now, twenty fourth in the majors, and this is where they're supposed to excel. Again, this is not a team where you look at the lineup and you go, oh, but the power is going to be there because these guys are all big sluggers. Aside from Ramirez and Bell, and again maybe Baylor, or sorry Naylor, um, this is not a power hitting team. They have to make their bones on stuff like on making contact and on and on uh and on making quality contact and some of this i think you know you look at batting average on balls in play cleveland is 26 in the league at 274 i think the league average right now is somewhere around 290 so they're a little unlucky in that regard but they're also not hitting the ball hard at all again when you you know those barrel and hard hit rate stats i just quoted bottom five in the league in both categories you know Mm. the isolated power bottom like third worst in the league or second worst i've already forgotten which it was you know, that's not something you can't have a viable, successful offense with those kinds of numbers. You just can't do it. It doesn't matter how much contact you make. And again, Cleveland is second in the majors in contact. This isn't some early season thing where they're swinging and missing a lot. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's just not quality contact right now. Yeah. And if that's going to be the case, if the if the Cleveland offense is once again going to be one of the weaker ones in the majors and kind of susceptible, essentially, to a ton of batting average on balls and play luck, then the pitching staff's really going to need to step up to to shoulder the load. And so far, that hasn't really happened. You know, you've got Shane Bieber, who has not looked very good so far, in part because his slider has just not been quite the same pitch it was last year. And given the fact he's throwing about 90 miles an hour right now, there's not really anything else for him. You know, he's got a 323 ERA, but his ex-FIP which is based uh, almost entirely on walk strikeouts, home runs, and all that fun stuff, up to 426. You know, and the Mm -hmm. rest of that rotation is not very much better. I mean... With a small caveat that I'll get to in a minute with, you know, the rookies they have in their rotation, Zach Plesak and Cal Quantrill, perfectly fine back of the rotation guys, but again, guys you cannot really trust in anything more than that kind of situation. Not guys you want starting playoff games. Similarly, Aaron Savale, who's currently injured, not a dude who strikes out a lot. These are not strikeout pitchers that the, that the Cleveland Guardians develop. The counter to that is the two guys they just recently caught up, Logan Allen and uh, Tanner Bibby. Tanner Bibby, I believe, is, mm. is how it's pronounced. Uh, by, it's either Bibby or Bybee. Yeah, I haven't I heard think, it out loud. I think Bybee is, is, is actually the pronunciation. Bibby is funnier, but regardless. <laughs> um, those two, uh, Bybee just made his debut on Wednesday against Colorado and looked very good. Logan Allen made his debut over the weekend against uh, Miami and looked very good. I imagine those two guys are going to get rotation spots going forward. Uh, they're also, you know, Cleveland has a ton of good pitching in its, in its system. So there is, I think some, excuse me, there is definitely some upside there, but again, that pitching staff needs to be borderline perfect to carry an offense like this. And that's really hard to do when 40% of your rotation is Zach Plesak and Cal Quantrill and is also just, uh, subject, subject to the mercies of batting average on balls in play. 
And when Shane Bieber, who amazingly is only 28 years old, but throws basically like Zach Greinke at this point, he does not really have the arsenal at this point that kind of lets him dance through trouble. He's not a big strikeout swing and miss guy anymore until and unless that slider is is working for him. So I I, I am and I, I am and I think understandably so skeptical of the Cleveland Guardians. And with that being the case, then again, what is the point of the rest of this division? I, I could spend I feel like an hour just talking about how the White Sox are an absolute disaster at this point. Which we saw coming before the year. Yes, and I, I I will take as many victory laps as I can on this because I not to say like it's oh I'm so smart that to, to see that a team that was really bad last year was going to be really bad again, but it's really clear no one in Chicago has any idea what they're doing. It's really mm-hmm. clear Rick Hahn doesn't know what he's doing, or at the very least is so hamstrung by whatever machinations Jerry Reinsdorf is up to, by whatever payroll constraints that he has imposed upon the team, that there is effectively no way for them to do any better in this. And to some degree, you can trace what's gone wrong in Chicago to those original decisions uh, seven or so years ago, the big teardown trades of Chris Sale, of Adam Eaton, where they dismantled that team and were like, okay, we're going to restart, you know, fresh, a bunch of prospects. That just hasn't worked out. And some of that is just, you know, the poor dumb luck of stuff like, you know, acquiring Yohan Moncada, who at the time was the number one prospect in the game, a dude who just cannot stay healthy. Similarly, Mm. Michael Kopech, who was one of the best pitching prospects in baseball when he was with Boston, uh, turns into a guy who similarly cannot stay healthy and whose stuff is just not consistent enough for him to be competitive on a regular basis. Uh, the Adam Eaton trade obviously landed them Lucas Giolito, but someone who has kind of wavered the last two seasons, and I think has been a really big reason why Chicago has struggled so badly. The Lance Lynn trade, where, uh, where again, they were building back up. They gave up Dane Dunning. Not someone I think they're necessarily going to miss, but Lynn just has not been there for them this season. Looks like he's a guy who's starting to hit the cliff. You know, and this is a team, as we've kind of hammered on over and over and over again, just does not have internal depth. So yep. when these problems start cropping up, when Mankata invariably goes on the on the IL, when Aloy Jimenez, who already has had his injury this year and is probably due for another at some point, goes on the injured list. You know, when, when Giolito and Lynn are struggling badly, when Reynaldo Lopez turns out not to be actually the closer you want, there are just no options for replacements. You know, then you're just good. Then you're doing stuff like, well, let's put Gavin Sheets in right field. How is that working out so far? Very poorly. And for as much as you can say, oh, it's still early, there's plenty of time to turn it around, especially, you know, two things I think are important here. One is that, as my colleague Dan Samborski pointed out on Twitter earlier today, you know, it's still early, but those 19 losses now or 18 losses for Chicago, those are already baked in. So mm-hmm. if, if this, even if you still think, oh, the White Sox are a 90-win team from this point forward, they're going to end up at 83 wins. You know, yeah. they, they have to play at a 95-plus win pace to be comfortably above 500 going forward. Yeah. Does this look at all look at like a team that's going to do that? Given the problems they have, given how barren their farm system is, given how allergic they have been to making signings or trades to bolster the major league roster. And that's the other thing. This is not a White Sox front office that has shown any inclination to make the kind of impact moves at the deadline or really at any other point during the year to make a team better. Uh, You know, so those games already count and they've already counted in a really big, really bad way. The other part of this is with the schedule now semi like somewhat rebalanced, Chicago doesn't have a ton of games, you know, still to come against Kansas City or Detroit to fatten up. You know, I I Mm. think you can make a pretty convincing argument. Both those teams are worse than Chicago. Maybe Detroit is like about the same. But either way, like those are those are the teams that, you know, if you're a White Sox fan, you're like, okay, we can beat up on them. We can make up some ground and Cleveland doesn't look very good you're not going to get those 19 games a year against each of those guys anymore. You know, I don't know what it ended up being. Maybe it's just at 12 or 13 now. I think it depends on the individual team and, and, and division. But 
that that room is not there to be made up. And granted, yeah, that means you're going to get more games against the A's, more games against the Nationals, more games against the Reds. You know, you, you just you, you find the bad teams in other divisions. But the White Sox are one of those bad teams right now. They they got all close to no hit by Jose Barrios, who has been a walking train wreck to mix metaphors for the last two seasons. Today, against uh, in that series finale against Toronto, the 11 of the last 12 White Sox hitters struck out. That, I mean, that that's past, like, something... That's past, like, you know, bad talent, bad decision-making, whatever. That's a team openly quitting in late April. That's really, really bad. So, in my mind, it's like, what what is the point of the AL Central doing the rest of this? I don't even want to get into Kansas City, which clearly doesn't also doesn't know. Like, look at that Royals lineup and tell me that that team knows what it's doing with regards to roster construction. Like, try. Mm. Please try to tell me. Similarly with Detroit... The vibes off that team are just one endless who cares anymore. You like you can almost feel like the wave of apathy coming off AJ Hinch in the dugout, where I think he has finally fundamentally realized this is a go nowhere job with a go nowhere team. Nothing matters anymore. You know when you've got Javi Baez forgetting how many outs there are multiple times. Um, I don't know what you do with that at a certain point, you know? And the, the shame with Detroit is there's some legit talent there, but as we've gone over a bunch of times, they have been really really bad at developing it. And so now they're in this period, I think, similar... Like, Chicago's in this place because it tore down, misdeveloped its players, and then didn't do the requisite free agency and trade moves to bolster the roster, and that didn't work out. Detroit is in that stage now where it's like, okay, we did the teardown, we got the prospects, and they're not working. And they're they're also heading for that similar place of, but we don't really want to spend money to try to bring in free agents to fix this because that's going to be really hard. The only solution here is to build from the ground up again, essentially. It's going to be a long time before Detroit is competitive, and I think a real contender. And at this rate, I'm not really seeing any reason to think Chicago's going to get there any faster, you know? Like, the window for this team is, is, is if not closed, about an inch wide at this point. You know, I, I, I'm not sure where the optimism comes from for the White Sox. You know, if you're, if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, well, the White Sox can still win the Central, I bless you, man. I don't know where that optimism is coming from, but as, as y'all tend to say down there, bless your heart, man. That's... That's some beautiful optimism right there. And I think it's one of those things too. Like, you know, some fan bases are just like, just kill us. Yeah. Like just in this, <laughs> like, I don't think they, not them personally, but if like, the, if, I, there's a word for this and it's called Mets fans. That's yes. one perpetual. Someone please put my head under a dump truck and run it over. But it's not even for white Sox fans. I think it's more for, I mean, what's stuck in, stuck in my memory is just the white Sox fans on twitter that i follow all collectively like losing their minds uh who's in right field when he just loses it in the sun it was gavin sheets and just oh that's that's still where we are and they're just like let's let's move on it's like they're ready to move on they're ready to just clean house again they're like why are we doing this they've just been on a treadmill nothing changes nothing changes with this franchise with this team It, it I can't imagine being a White Sox fan. It must feel like you're going crazy the whole time. Like mm. you've you've seen how many times have you seen Gavin Sheets, who is just a good, a, a perfectly fine hitter. I know you know this is not a knock on him personally, but has been demonstrated over and over and over again is not a capable outfielder. Yeah. A guy who's only really supposed to be standing out there in case of emergencies, and yet it feels like two times a week the White Sox are just shoving him out into right field and being like, "Go with God." Like that must drive that must drive you nuts. To the mm. point where I think, I, I feel like I've seen a fair number of White Sox fans on Twitter reach that stage of, I just don't care anymore. Mm. Because clearly no one in charge of the team cares. Why should I? You know, I, I think that sense of like, please kill me, this team is killing me, 
you know, that that that's a very Phillies vibe. And as I say that, they just gave up a grand slam to J.P. Crawford. So <laughs> Phillies fans are very much in their please kill me moments. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just, with the White Sox, I feel like at, at a certain point, like, you just tune them out, you know? You, th- because the, the vibes there are just all kinds of wrong, you know? And I, I, for one, like, again, like, their playoff odds aren't 0%, but right now they're sitting at 6.2%. <sighs> Those are wor- those are the worst playoff odds of any American League team, not named the Royals, Tigers, or A's. Man, like if you're a White Sox fan, you didn't expect to come into this. You didn't expect by b- before April is even out to be like we're the fourth worst team in the American League, and it's not even close. It's not remotely close. So yeah, my, my take for the week, abolish the AL Central. The, the, the hell with this. Enough. Enough already. Enough you know of these teams you know that are worse bad, too? Except for Minnesota. Do you know it's worse, too? Uh, the fact that there's still like 130 games left for the White Sox? Well, that. But also, the <laughs> Twins are going to win this division and get the Yankees in, uh, in a first or second round series. In but they got the monkey off their back. They didn't. Now it's time Not to get the, the bigger monkey off their back. No, no. That's, don't look, do this, John. You, you, how do you get a monkey off your back? One limb at a time. So, mm-hmm. look, I'm, I'm here for the Twins breaking their curse. I'm here for them finally freaking winning a playoff series. For the good people of Minnesota, as Joe Biden would say, Minnesota! <laughs> You have to be so online to get there. I'm so sorry to everyone listening to this who is not online to the brain-broken degree of, like, when you hear Minnesota, you just imagine Joe Biden yelling it. But it's also one of those things you don't know how online you are until certain things like that take you to that certain thing. And you're like, no one else understands this, but this is stuff that I've just stored in my brain until the end of time. It's frightening how Twitter has worn particular grooves in my brain, like the ruts of a wheel. Mm -hmm. That just this dirty water just kind of flows (laughs) down and into a central processing area or Mm -hmm. something. I don't know how the brain works. Point of this being, no more AL Central. We as a society have evolved beyond the need for the American League Central. If you want my expanded take on that, get Mm -hmm. rid of divisions entirely at this point. Like I noted, and this is part of something I noted to you over text a couple days ago. Uh, Not the case now because uh, Boston lost today, but Mm -hmm. I do love this. But either way, every team in the American League East is 500 or better. Every single team. One team in the AL Central is 500 or better. Like, what are we doing? What is the point of that? Get rid of it. Get it out of here. Cut it. Throw it out. It's garbage. Tired of it. The Red Sox are dead last in the AL East. Eight games behind Tampa Bay. Their their playoff odds are three times what the White Sox are. Mm. What do you do with that? Like, if you're if you're a White Sox fan, what do you even do with that? You cry. You you cry and you quietly see if the Cubs are taking applications for fans. I don't know. Which has got to be the other galling thing if you're a White Sox fan. The Cubs are actually kind of good this year. Maybe not good, but they're not an embarrassment. Yeah. You know, I still think the Cubs finish around 500, and that's where our projections have them too. Mm. But. That's a team that actually feels like it's on the up and up to a certain degree. That things are actually returning to some level of competency and contention and normalcy. Whereas everything in the, on the south side just feels like you're living in an abandoned house. You know? <laughs> I, I, re- I do feel for White Sox fans. I, I know a good number of them on Twitter. They're, they're good people. You know, I'm friends yeah. with them. But sheesh, what a franchise. Like, and it's just the thing I think especially about nothing ever changes is every year Rick Hahn just gets to keep running this team. Every year, Jerry Reinsdorf is still there, just, you know, farting around, you know? Mm. 
And I feel bad too for their for Pedro Grifal, their manager. Like I, I can't say or speak as to you know whether or not this is a job that is for him. Really, you know, I haven't watched nearly enough White Sox baseball to be able to tell you how he is as a manager. But regardless, what a, that's a that's a horrible opening gig to get. Is like take this team that is just rancid all the way around and try to make it better. Are we going to give you help to do that? Absolutely not. Here's Andrew Benintendi. That's it. Good luck. Here's Mike Clevenger. He throws two pitches. Good luck. Go White Sox. Go White Sox. Um, is Madison Bumgarner a Hall of Famer for you, John? No. Okay. Just, I mean, I can see. No, I mean, you really have to. You 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 really either have to stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, what his playoff contributions meant, and not just playoff contributions, but specifically one particular postseason where he just turned into Walter Johnson, which admittedly was very cool. Mm-hmm. Or you have to be an enormous Hall guy, like. And granted, I I'm not of the I'm not the type to be like you know if there's a borderline hall player, let him in. Who fucking mm. cares at a certain point, you know? Like if, if you know, uh, I'm trying to think of which guys got voted in where they had kind of a borderline reputation. Like, uh, honestly, I feel like every Hall of Famer who's been voted in by the writers, and I want to make that a really important caveat, uh, has been a worthy and deserving Hall of Famer. You know, I I don't think the writers in the last really even 10 years or so have, have strayed particularly far. I think they've been too slow in recognizing some guys, but I think on the whole, the guys they voted for, you look at and you go, yeah, that feels right. Mm-hmm. And great that I think there's some guys in that group, Larry Walker, Scott Rowland, where if you're not, if you're not as like, either if you don't care about or not as plugged into the advanced metrics on those guys, you probably have a moment where you're like, Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer now? But at the same time, yeah, Scott Rowland was one of the best defensive third basemen of his generation, was a great hitter, was had a long and, and very good career. Similarly, Larry Walker, even with Coors Field, even take Coors Field entirely out of it, was a great hitter and a great defensive outfielder. You know, those mm-hmm. are guys where you look at the numbers and it illuminates. Oh, hey, this guy was actually way better than I thought. With Bumgarner, you look at the numbers and they all basically just say the same thing: not enough. You know, you look at you know it, if you're at all a, a baseball reference person, you know that baseball re- probably know that Baseball Reference on their player pages uh, includes. Uh, what they like to call the Hall of Fame statistics, which is a number of monitor stats and and indexes that just keep track of uh, basically a, a pitcher's or player's Hall of Fame uh, worthiness, essentially. Oh, this may be mm. the right word. Uh, Bumgarner is just way short on everything. By Black Ink, uh, which measures, uh, I want to get the exact thing here. Uh, Black Ink is gives you points for league leading for basically for times you led the league in some category or another. Uh, the average Hall of Famer has 40 points on their Black Ink score. Bumgarner is at four. Mm. Gray Ink, which includes top 10 appearances as well as leading. Uh, average Hall of Famer is at 185. Bumgarner is 113. So he's way off the pace there. The Hall of Fame monitor, which basically charts stuff like uh, more or less, you know, the for the big round numbers, you know, or for things like if you won an MVP award, if you won a gold glove, if you won a World Series, you get bonus points for that. Average Hall of Famer in the Hall of Fame monitor score, which is a Bill James invention, 100, Bumgarner, 59. And that's with that ludicrous postseason included. Hmm. And then the big one for me always, Jay Jaffe's Jaws system, which uh, uses wins above replacement to measure uh, Hall of Famers and Hall of Fame candidates against each other and against who's already in the Hall. Uh, The average Hall of Fame pitcher, and granted, this is one of the most, like, hard-to-crack groups in, not not much hard-to-crack, but this is a group of guys who are, you know, the numbers here are are enormous. You know, the average Hall Mm -hmm. of Fame pitcher, 73 career wins above replacement, and 50, 50 wins above replacement in what Jay likes to call a seven-year peak. So take the best seven years of their career, 
add them all up essentially to get their peak score, and then a Jaws score, which is basically him uh, tweaking the numbers to get a kind of overall kind of wins above replacement style number. Mm. 61.4 for the average Hall of Fame pitcher. Bumgarner, just above 37 career wins above replacement. So he's barely, uh, he's just exactly half the Hall of Fame average. Uh, His seven-year peak, 30 war, which is almost 20 points off the the seven-year peak for an average Hall of Famer. 33.8 33.8 Jaws, which is 30 points shy of the average Hall of Famer in Jaws. And that includes S Jaws, too, which is Jay's attempt to adjust Jaws for pitchers in our era, given that pitchers now no longer routinely throw 250-plus innings or win 20 games on the regular. So, And that, I think, is really the thing that Bumgarner had going for him the most, that if, if he were to have become a Hall of Famer, it would have been because he turned into one of those dudes who just pitched forever and was just going to give you 200 innings year in and year out. That's not the case anymore, and not just not the case anymore. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know it's like a, a health thing. I'm sure if you gave Bumgarner enough starts, he would probably give you 200 innings. The problem is they're 200 really crappy innings at this point. Yeah. You know, we saw what he did in Arizona, not just this year where he was terrible, but the year before where he was terrible, the year before that where he was terrible. Really, 2020 is about the only stretch of good pitching he's been able to do in Arizona, and I'm almost at the point where I don't even think that season even really counts to a certain degree. It was, it was so messed up and weird. Regardless, Bumgarner, the Bumgarner in Arizona is... Weirdly, he is both not the same Bumgarner that we knew from San Francisco, but he is exactly the same Bumgarner we knew from San Francisco. Because nothing has actually changed about what he does. His approach is the same. His arsenal is the same. He is exactly the same pitcher in that regard, which is why he is no longer the old Madison Bumgarner, because that stuff doesn't work anymore. And that, I think, more than anything else, is why Bumgarner is not going to get the opportunity to continue adding... Well, I'm sure some team out there... Especially given that the the Diamondbacks are on the hook for every la- for the thirty some million dollars he's still owed for the next two seasons, some team will pick him up for the major league minimum. Some team that needs some pitching help somewhere and give him a shot and see what he's got. But until and unless he changes something, tries to do something different, changes his approach, changes his arsenal, you know, instead of just kind of sticking his head in the sand and just trying to plow forward with this with the mediocre stuff he has been getting lit up with, you're not going to get any better. And I think what ultimately it's a very different path to get there, and they're very different pitchers ultimately, but it's pretty much the same outcome as Felix Hernandez, a guy who shoved and shoved and shoved and grinded away for over a decade with the Mariners. You know, lots of innings, lots of batter's face, was transcendent at his peak, better than Bumgarner at his peak, but by the time 32, 33 rolled around, he was effectively done as a major league pitcher because all that, that arm was completely spent, and I think Bumgarner is pretty much in the same place. So I think if you're, you know, it... it I don't think that Bumgarner... Bumgarner will get on a Hall of Fame ballot, I'm sure. I think he will be a very quick one-and-done. Because um, this is this is not even a guy where it's like an Andy Pettit, where you can sit around and go, oh, but, you know, there's a long career and a lot of good, a lot of accolades. And I think the closest thing you can tie is, oh, they were both postseason warriors. Pettit did it over and over and over again. That's no knock on Bumgarner whatsoever. The three World Series runs that, that the Giants made, he was central to all of them. He is the, the singular, almost, reason that they won the World Series in 2014. He will never pay for a drink in San Francisco again, despite the fact he will never want to go to San Francisco again because of all the George Soros-created crime and whatever. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, it's Madison Bumgarner. But his Hall of Fame argument rests entirely on October 2014. That's pretty much it. And for as much as a postseason resume can help your Hall of Fame chances, I think of Pettit sticking on the ballot. I think of David Ortiz, uh, you know, Getting becoming a first ballot Hall of Famer, I think, and I, I you'd have to talk to the voters, but I'm pretty sure this played a large part for them in you know being so central to the Red Sox winning in 2004 and then again in 2013. You know, for Bumgarner, it, it's just that one month, really. 
You know, I think he will get some courtesy votes from some Giants beats when the time comes, and maybe from some other particularly old school guys who love the way he was a, you know, uh, give me the ball and get out of my way type. But like, no, Madison Bumgarner, unfortunately, too short a career, not a long enough of a peak. Uh, You know, and, and like I said, I don't think his career is over. I think he'll find a home somewhere else. But I think the days of Madison Bumgarner being an impact starter are long gone, and I think any real chance of him being a Hall of Famer is is long gone too. But his peak was some of the best peak pitching performances you'll see ever. Yes, from 2014 to 2016, because I, I, I pulled those numbers up because that's yeah. arguably his peak. I'm just going to read the stats out. Uh, 99 starts, 12 complete games, 5 <laughs> shutouts, 662 innings, which amounts to... I'm just going to divide that up. That amounts to seven innings a turn, more or less. A 288 ERA, 704 strikeouts, only 136 walks. It's less than two walks per nine. An ERA plus of 131. A whip barely over 1.04. And in terms of uh, baseball reference wins above replacement over that period of time, uh, 13.5 wins over that period or 4.5 wins a year. For those three seasons, he was arguably one of the five best starters in baseball. And included in that run, of course, is that 2014 postseason where he was, again, the second coming of Walter Johnson. That's so cool. And that is something where, you know, regardless of, of what happens with his career going forward and regardless of whether or not he, you know, he won't, he will not be a Hall of Famer. But regardless of what happens with that going forward, you know, if you grew up or if you were a baseball fan during that period of time, you're always going to remember that. You know, Madison Bummer, it, it, it doesn't matter what happens for you going forward. He will always have October 2014, one of the single greatest postseason performances in the entirety of the history of the sport, maybe the greatest ever from a pitcher. It'll never be done again. Simply put, it will never be replicated. It will never happen again. I can feel very confident saying that what Madison Bumgarner did that October will never happen again in Major League Baseball, at least the way the, at least the way Major League Baseball operates now and presumably for the near future. It's really something special. And I think that the weirdness of like the whole Hall of Fame debate is sometimes in stuff like that where it's like, well, why don't we have room for these guys who were so great for this period of time or who were emblematic or iconic in this way? You know, I think that all that points to is, man, the Hall of Fame is really hard to get into. Like, those are the best of 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 the best, sir. Like, mm-hmm. there have been thousands of major league players. Only a small fraction of them have been good enough to get into the Hall of Fame. So that should, I think, if anything, that should really tell you how crazy the Hall of Fame is that Madison Bumgarner, who a lot of people in the future are going to remember and be like, man, that guy was great, wasn't he? Yeah, not nearly good enough to get into the Hall of Fame. That should really say something about how hard it is to get in the Hall of Fame. And again, that's okay. He had the peak. Giants okay. fans will be revered okay. in uh, San Francisco forever. Like yeah, that's num- the main thing. They'll retire his number. He'll be he'll be invited to every single uh, anniversary for the rest of time. Like he'll go into the, they'll he'll go into their ring of honor, whatever it is they have. Like. You know, he'll go into whatever his small North Carolina towns like Hall of Sports Hall of Fame is, where it'll literally just be him and probably a rodeo guy. But mm-hmm. like, I'm sure he'll he'll enjoy you know being able to make rodeo a bigger part of his life now. The the one it's the hard man, man as someone who was on Mason a horse and doing the whole rodeo thing uh, a few weeks ago, John. You get it's, sore. It's a tough, it's a tough. It's gig. a tough sport. I've seen it. I've seen it, and it looks like one of those things where I'm like, I cannot fathom why a human being would strap themselves to an angry animal and try to see how long they can stay on top of it. It's one of those things that is so. There's a reason American. you don't see older men on the on the horses. There's no. a re- or the bulls or whatever. There's, There's a reason some- that it's a young man's game, and it's not even for young men. No, it's for the ins- it's for the criminally yeah. insane. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that, but that's saying it. Uh, 
and I guess, yeah, like, that's a good point. Not everyone's career has to be the Hall of Fame, yeah. you know? Most guys do not have Hall of Most guys don't even have close to Most guys to don't Hall of have the kind of October dominance <sighs> and October just brilliance that Madison had. No, like, that's most, just a rarity. That's most okay. guys, yeah, he gets to live off that forever. And I think, you know, if you asked him today, like, hey, man, you, you, would you be happy with your career as it has turned out? I mean, I, I can't speak for Bumgarner because he's a legendary, and I'm, he's a legendary red ass. So there's a good chance he'd say, "No, man, I hate this." I'm sure he feels pretty good about where his career has turned out. Again, three World Series rings, and the World Series MVP in 2014. You're never ever gonna hear someone talk about postseason individual performances without mentioning him. You know, he will be there forever. It's it was a. I feel weird talking about him in the past tense, like, "Oh, he's gone now." But it's like, but he might be because remember be. with Tim Lincecum and guy like. I think we like to believe that Matt Cain too. Yeah, you think you can just like Felix, we expect the these guys to just evolve. Like it's something you see in basketball too, where it's like, why can't you just become Vince Carter and age the way Vince did, where he lost his athleticism but he turned it into shooting and he yeah, was or, a good like or become you, one of those older dudes who turns themselves into a three and D guy or something. Right. That not everyone can do that, and it's no, it's just not reality. Like most guys, like would kill for just that peak that Madison had, but like. It's so much easier said than, okay, now change everything about what made you one of the best pitchers in baseball for years, mm-hmm. and that's how you're going to stay in this game. Some guys make that adjustment, some don't. Roy Holiday didn't make that adjustment. There are guys, like you said, Felix Hernandez didn't make that. It's so much more difficult than just, you yeah. lost your velocity. All right, make some changes. Go be Zach Greinke for the next yeah. seven years. Not, and that's the thing, and, and I think you make a good point, too. It's like, not only is it not easy, but... Again, you're telling a guy, hey, the way you've done it literally since you started this sport, essentially, mm-hmm. the thing that made you famous and rich and, and you know, all of these things, change it entirely. I think there has to be some element of pride to that. And mm-hmm. I don't fault Madison Bumgarner for being like, I am going to be who I am. All, I mean, his very last start as a Diamondback, he's up there cursing out Wilson Contreras for being mad that he didn't get a good swing off. Hold on. Like, can, I, can, I, can I have a baby take here? Yes. It brings me no joy to admit this, John. Oh, no. Oh, I watched no. it, and I was like, Madison's got a point. Now, Madison Look, I, went over the top. That would have annoyed me as a pitcher. That would have annoyed it, me because it, it wasn't I, a big moment. It was something where I'm like, all right, it's not that big. Like, it, it was a little much. It was, it, we're, we're still moving was, here. I think I, 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 I do agree with that. Yelling at him, th- though? No, I, I wouldn't have done that. Thing. I think but, where, yeah. where Bumgarner perpetually loses people is how like virulent the reaction is. yes it's over the top like you can and be annoyed i would just be like i would give a look like i'm not i'd be like what are we doing and that's like, the thing like and mm. it always puts him in a position to get stunted on yes like max months like the the eternal one is max muncie telling him to go get it out of the ocean which is one of the funniest bits of trash <laughs> talk that baseball's ever created but even with that Contreras thing when he got the mm. walk he flipped the bat you yeah know? and it's like hell yeah it's like if you're gonna talk trash as a pitcher essentially and be like don't give me lip yeah, you're going to get that turned on you. And I think what has hurt Bumgarner in a lot of ways and what's made this, I think, feel more like the end of a career as opposed to the end of a period of his career is uh, it's the fact that he is this kind of unpleasant, you know, uh, eyewash red ass, you know, yeah. who is who's just uh, he seems like the kind of guy you really not have a good time having a beer with unless you happen to share his exact politics and worldview. Mm-hmm. So. And 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 I I you know I don't again talking ball with bum and huff. Boy, would that be a with special guest star Luke Scott? Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's the other unfortunate side of it is that so many, if not all, with the exception of Muncie, so many of these moments of him losing his his mind have come at players of color, which 
I, I look. I'm not gonna go like. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm not gonna say that Madison Bumgarner is something where I, you know, I do not know him. But like, at a certain point, you know, if it quacks yeah. like a duck and walks like a duck and you know eats bread like a duck and flies like a duck and you know has a bill like a duck and is a duck, then it's a duck. Um, but yeah, I. Uh, it was a great peak for Madison Bumgarner. It was a great run. And again, like what he did that October for the Giants, never gonna happen again. No. Um, what is uh, your early uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. return thoughts outside of him dancing to folks yelling at him about chanting about him taking steroids and making it a fun aspect of the Fernando Tatis Jr. experience? That, no surprise to me, I the vibe I've gotten from him throughout has just been that he just is going to be like, you know what, people can say what they want to say, I'm going to still be Fernando Tatis Jr., which is mm. honestly the only real appropriate way, I think, for him to deal with this stuff. It's I think it's the only gotta, way you can, right? And yeah, keep your I mean, sanity? Look, it's it's you got to. I think when you come back from something like that, it's you got one of two choices. You can do the whole penitent, head down, like repentant, like I'm so sorry, like I'm gonna tone it down, I'm gonna be quiet as a church mouse, or you're gonna be like, you know what? I made a mistake. I owned up to it. I got my, I did my time. I'm back now. Yeah. You don't like it? Shove it. Like, and I think that was always gonna be Tatis. I mean, everything we've seen of his career so far, of the way he plays, the way he carries himself, I think that was the only possible way that things were gonna be for him. You know, as to what we've seen so far, I mean, I, you know, it's only been, what, uh, five games for him so far, just about Mm. that. You know, there's nothing really, I think, to read into his stats. It's been a slow start, but again, it's five games. You know, he's only got all of 17 batted, 16 batted ball events. You know, there's there's nothing really to work with there. Uh, I I think the big thing is, what does this do in terms of, you know, of San Diego with regards to the roster and the way it's shaped? Because now you have Tatis and Wright. Uh, this lineup, obviously, it, it makes a big impact on this lineup to have him at the top of it, to have it be that much deeper. But, you know, that that I think is is impact number one is, you know, having him atop the lineup, having him in right field, no longer having to play Jose Azokar or, uh, you know, or I guess Brett Sullivan. That can't be right. You know, he is better than like he is better than the options he was replacing, you know, mm. and that that is just a, an inarguable thing. Um, otherwise, I you know, I I. I truly don't know what there is with Tatis right now. I think what's going to be what I think is going to be curious to see going forward is how does he produce, and not even so much because of it coming off the, the steroid suspension. I, I I'm not a, a a chemist, a pharmacist, any of that stuff. You know, I can't say specifically as to what the steroid he took was doing. But my my guess and understanding is that that was a steroid not for performance reasons, but for recovery reasons. That that was hmm. something he was tr- using to try to get back on the field sooner and to try to. You know, in essentially the same way that players are using human growth hormone to try to speed up their recovery and their and, and healing from injury. Mm. You know, because the, the bigger thing, I think, is how is his wrist going to respond? You know, that wrist has already been operated on twice, was a huge problem for him uh, in 2022. Obviously, wrist issues are the kind of thing that can be persistent, uh, debilitating, you know, similar along the lines of back issues, you know. So I think the big thing with Tatis going forward is going to be looking at how does that wrist respond, especially after so much time off. Um, I think we got a good sense in AAA that there was nothing seemingly bothering him down there. So that makes me think, you know, he's healthy, you know, he's in good shape. He seems to be have his head on right, which I guess is the other thing you look for is, you know, we're getting the good Tatis right now. The one who when he's getting taunted with steroid chance is just dancing it off and laughing, you know. Does that stay the case if he once he's in a slump? Does that stay the case with the Padres or, you know, like, you know swimming around 500 at the all-star break is that you know still the case when he hears it for the 18th day in a row from some leather lungs in the bleachers like 
This is a guy who's already lungs. shown. It's that that one's got to come. I'm gonna bring that one back. Um, this is a guy who's shown already a few times that he does. N- he has not necessarily been the most mature guy on the field, on mm. or off it. And that I think is going to be the really big test: is can he keep his cool? Can he keep his composure? Can he? avoid making these mistakes again when there is more not just more pressure than ever on him in coming back from a steroid suspension but also more pressure than ever on the franchise around him a franchise by the way that no longer really seems to treat him as the face of it which i think is also really important well they don't have to because there are bigger names now on exactly and this and this is the thing like fernando tatis jr before he got before he hurt his wrist and before the steroid suspension, was the Padres. He was the yeah. bright, shiny future of that franchise. He was the guy that they wanted to build around, the guy who sold the tickets, the guy who was on the face of everything. Now that's not so much the case because they've got Xander Bogarts, they've got Manny Machado, they've got Josh Hader, they've got you Darvish. You know, they've got the Padres have plenty of guys to focus their efforts around who are not coming off both a PED suspension and a broken wrist suffered in a motorcycle accident. You know. I, I think that's and I obviously a lot of that is going to be some internal clubhouse stuff and it's also worth wondering like what the clubhouse vibe is with Tatis or I don't get the sense that there's anything wrong necessarily I'd imagine that whatever needed to be hashed out was probably hashed out last year after the suspension dropped but I mean AJ Preller has a good case to always be like pissed off at Fernando Tatis Jr. Sure. And I think and I think that's the other part of it is if Tatis does get off to a slow starter does struggle yeah. this season it's going to be that much more intense on him because of the fact that a lot of people are going to be like, you had it all in your hands. Yes. And you threw it away. A you team know? that's ready to win now that needed you last year in the mm-hmm. And that needs him this year. You know, yes. this is a, this Padres team is, is good without Fernando Tatis, but it's way better with him. Yep. And on top of all of that, obviously, is the fact that he already got his money. He already yeah. got an enormous bag, which, fair or not, fans are going to hold over him until and unless he does until and unless essentially he wins a world series yeah so there's or a MVP. lot of they probably or an MVP, MVP, yeah. but there's there's a ton of pressure both on him and the padres right now for this to work yeah so for now it's it's obviously it's relative honeymoon stage because it's early you know and, and i don't think even though the padres aren't playing particularly well right now i'm not worried know, about the padres no i don't think anyone necessarily is until and unless they start suffering a lot of injuries or something yeah uh, particularly given that the dodgers don't look all that great in the nl west either and that while the diamondbacks do look good i don't think that's a team that's that gonna either... fade off I, d- yeah. I just i think the padres are fine i'm not really worried about it no i think but i do think that if things either stay slow or go bad the pressure is going to be a lot for them to deal with and so i'm really interested to see how tatis in particular handles that um because he he's got a bullseye on his back the size of an aircraft carrier like you know because that's the thing for a lot of fans it doesn't matter what the context was what the circumstances were what your background is any of that stuff you take peds you get caught you get suspended you are public enemy number one going forward you know there's always going to be that that very vocal subset of fans both padres fans and non-padres fans who are going to look at him and go tainted goods cheater you know you're the bad guy now until he gets traded to like the yankees and then it's just like yes it's kind of amazing he's just doing an A-Rod speed run, essentially. Right? I was going to say, there's just a lot of A-Rod vibes here. Which Did is, you know I mean, of course, of course there is. Codify Baseball had this. Um, best power speed numbers by active players in their last 162 games. John Taylor. Who yes. would you guess are the top three? Uh, Shohei Otani. Nope. Does it not just not enough events? He's awesome. Yeah. Not uh, enough. Well, Tatis is probably one of them, considering you... He is. Number one, 47 home runs, 30 stolen bases. Okay, so they're, they're going by home run, stolen base. Total. Yes. Okay. Uh, then Julio Rodriguez? Nope. No, because he's only had the one season. Mm-hmm. 
Ooh, this is tough then. Uh, who hits a lot of home runs and steals a lot of bases? It used to be Mike Trout. It did used to be Mike Trout, not anymore. R.I.P. Um, <laughs> uh, Judge doesn't steal bases really anymore either. Nope. Jeez, who are the big power speed guys? I'll give you a hint. He plays for my team. Okay, Ronald Acuna, who is Ronald on pace to steal like 95 bases this season. Exactly. 24 right. homers, 44 stolen bases. All right, so who's the third guy? Kyle Tucker. Kyle Tucker, the always underrated Kyle Tucker. That makes a lot of sense. Um, 33 homers, 29 yeah, stolen like, bases. As, as you just perfectly illustrated, the combination of things he brings to the field, the Fernando Tatis He still has MVP upside. Yes, it is, it is, it is unicorn stuff. It is mm-hmm. MVP caliber stuff. That's again, why you don't trade him. That's why you still let him back in the locker room, and that's why you still let him back. Yeah, you, like it, it's why you let him fail his way off yes. the team. I think, and I think this is a scenario where if Tatis does something stupid again, then the, the talk about trading him is going to reach a stupid pitch. Yeah, because at that point, you're, if you're the Padres, you're like, we can't trust this guy anymore. You know, he he, and I think this is another part of that pressure is he is on some relatively thin ice. You know, mm. you can get busted for steroids once, and people are willing to let it go over time. It can't happen twice. Similarly, you can hurt yourself in a dumb off-the-field accident. It can't happen twice. You know, it, it you just you have to demonstrate some level of growth and maturity and change. And I think that Tatis is perfectly capable of it, and there's certainly no sign that he's not doing it. But that that's going to be a really big thing for him and the Padres going forward. Is essentially can they trust him? And he's got he's got to work to earn that trust back. For sure. But hey, he might. And he's baseball's more fun when Fernando Tatis Jr. is playing baseball. Absolutely. Um, John, Team One Spotlight, Yankees over the last week. What have you seen? Their playoff odds still at like 70-ish percent. The Blue Jays and the uh, Rays look like they're almost postseason locks at this point with the way they're starting things out we've, here. Uh, we've got, well, we've got the Rays at 95%. Yeah. Um, the Rays again, might clinch by end of with, June. Yeah, without without Wednesday's games included. Uh, mm. They're playing uh, Houston right now. Uh, the Yankees at 79%. They beat the crap out of Minnesota today, so that's probably going to go up a tick. And mm. the Blue Jays, who, as we noted, uh, just spent the last three games just pushing the White Sox into a puddle mm-hmm. uh, at 81.2%. So they, we've got the Blue Jays and Yankees basically neck and neck with solid distance behind the Rays. I think, you know, if you're the Yankees, you're not panicking at any point right now, if only because even with the Rays going 20-4 and four to start the season, you're only, you're only six and a half games behind them. That's not an insurmountable lead by any stretch of the imagination. I think the bigger problem with the Yankees right now is you're seeing a real lack of depth with this roster. With you, you, and that's and a lot of that is you know it feels like this happens every year when Giancarlo Stanton gets hurt because it's not an if it's a when at this point. The second he goes down, you look at that lineup and you go, oh, there's not a lot here after the mm. middle half, you know, and then. Some of this, too, is I think, you know, they, they I imagine the Yankees expected Anthony Volpe to get off to a little bit of a better start. And he certainly seems to be picking it up. And again, it's still early. I think he's going to be a great player. This is not something I think the Yankees are panicking about. But I think that has contributed to this overall malaise, today's outburst against the Twins notwithstanding, of in terms of offense. You know, because mm. what it looks like right now is, you know, the Yankees toward the back half of last season when they almost blew that division lead in the AL East and didn't really look like a serious contender from really September onward. Yeah, that lineup was just Aaron Judge and nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was Aaron Judge every night. And Aaron Judge made that work because he had one of the single greatest individual seasons in the history of baseball. Mm-hmm. But when Aaron Judge is not having one of the single greatest individual se- seasons in Major League Baseball, 
that's where the problems start because this this is a Yankees team that has a lot of holes that they only kind of sort of little bit patched over the course of the offseason, you know? We talked all offseason about how the outfield corners in New York, well, left field in particular because Judge yeah. was 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 going to be in right and they were going to have Harrison Bader in center until Bader hurt himself in spring training. You know, that left field really did not look like they had actually tried to do anything. That they were basically like, well, we'll give it to Orlando, or Orlando to Oswaldo Cabrera and Aaron Hicks and just kind of hope maybe something will work out there. I think similarly with third base, where Josh Donaldson was really not up to the task last season, I think you could have made a really good case in the offseason for moving on from that contract, trying to figure out some other kind of solution. Instead, He's the idea was... Then that's the thing. Like this is yeah. not, you know, it's one thing if Josh Donaldson had a bad season at 29. You're like, well, it's it's he's 29. He'll be fine. 36 yeah. year old Josh Donaldson having a bad season. It's one of those like big blaring red alarm <laughs> lights where it's like, uh oh, uh oh, like, you know. And and yet the Yankees didn't really do anything in yeah. terms of either replacing him, which I admit probably would not have been the easiest thing to do. But even in terms of just getting some better depth, then okay, well, we'll just give it to Oswald Peraza and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. Like, that, that is not really a serious... You all have not hit. I think some of that, too, was the belief that DJ LeMahieu, when healthy, was going to be the DJ LeMahieu he had been during the first few years in New York as opposed to last year. Jury is still out on that, I think, especially because LeMahieu, similarly, a guy who... Um, obviously, he's not Josh Donaldson old, and he didn't have a Josh Donaldson-level terrible season, but uh, DJ LeMahieu is no spring chicken. He's 34 years old. He's someone you, you know? want DHing every day. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not a guy you want to you protect want... in bubble wrap. He's a great hitter. He has a 145 yeah. WRC plus this season. He's been fantastic, but again, not really a guy I think you feel comfortable having out there all the time. Right. And again, this lineup has great hitters. Judge is judge. Is judge. Glaber Torres has been very good. Anthony Rizzo has been very good. LeMahieu has been very good. The you know what would be nice, John? What's that? John Carlos Stanton ever being healthy. That like, would be really great, wouldn't it? If the you're man's a just fan, never going to be healthy. The but that's the just... thing, like... After those guys, after that mm. top five of Judge, Rizzo, Stanton, Torres, and LeMahieu, and I guess eventually I think you can add Volpe to that list because he mm. is improving, it's a whole lot of nothing. It's a yeah. whole lot of Jose Trevino. It's a whole lot of Oswaldo Cabrera. It's a whole lot, weirdly right now, of Franchi Cordero and <sighs> Willie Calhoun, which I, I can't begin to understand how the Yankees ended up in that position. And I think similarly, this is something I've, I've, I've carped about with the Red Sox, where it just doesn't feel like there are ever any better internal options there aren't really better internal lineup options here. Yeah. You know, like you look at what the, what the Yankees are, what the Yankees have in the mind. You look at what they have on the injured list. Mm. Bader obviously will be, he, he can't be worse effectively than what the Yankees are running out there right now. But Bader, Harrison Bader is not a season saver. No, he's a stabilizer, but he does, he does not turn seasons around. Uh, Stanton. I, I just don't know what you can expect at this point, aside from 110 games where he is just routinely impacted by injury. Uh, and beyond that, like, you look at what they have in AAA, there, there's not really, I mean, maybe a guy like Andres Chaparro or a guy like Jake Bowers, you know, older, or Chaparro's only 24, but Bowers is 27 and a half, you know, not, not non-prospects to a certain degree who might be able to provide a quick, uh, a quick immediate impact. But the actual real impact prospect guys are still a couple years away. Everson Pereira, uh, Austin Wells, Trey Sweeney, Jason Dominguez. Those guys are in double A right now, and they're all, you know, they're all going to be the the theoretical core of the next great Yankees team, or the next, I guess not the next great, the continually great Yankees team. I don't know. But that those guys are not there yet. Whatever improvements are going to come for this Yankees team, they have to come from outside. And I think when, when you look at what the Yankees are right now, I think the main question is, why didn't they do more last offseason? I know the judge thing was was top of the list, top of the priorities, you know, and they got it done. And I know that Carlos Rodon signing, even though he's hurt, I really love that signing for the Yankees. And I think he's going to be a really big, he's going to make it, 
a huge impact when he comes back off the injured list, assuming everything goes okay with him. And you never want to say that just for sure for an arm injury, but it doesn't, at least we haven't heard anything to the effect of the, like Rodon is in serious trouble or something. It all just seems like they, they feel pretty good about him coming back at least relatively soon. But that was really it in terms of what the Yankees did this offseason. And that and some kind of minor bullpen shuffling. It, it does make you wonder like whether or not there just needed to be more work done. And I think especially if you're a Yankees fan, you're probably a little worried too that the now main mechanism to add to this lineup, if it needs to be added to, is at the trade deadline where Brian Cashman really struggles. Where mm-hmm. Especially you look at last year's deals for Frankie Montes, for Scott F. Ross, um, and the, the Bader one I think has worked out okay so far, if only because Jordan Montgomery I don't think is, is, would have been a real difference maker on this team. Those deals have really come back to hurt the Yankees um, in, in what they both what they gave up and in terms of what they got in return. And I don't know how comfortable you feel as a Yankees fan with the thought of the the best way for this team to get help is at the trade deadline where Cashman has, get, has gotten himself pantsed over and over again the last few years. You know, this, there has not really been... Uh, I, I, I'm not really, I'm not even recall off the top of my head the last really good Yankees deadline trade that, that worked out well for them. And granted, most of that was just been pitching, like Lance mm-hmm. Lynn, Sonny Gray, uh, Montes, guys like that. But those did not work out particularly Bader well. Bader didn't go bad. Bader didn't go bad, and he almost single-handedly got them to the ALCS, him yeah. and him and a, a couple other they guys. They just need him out. I think that one's fine. You can, you can do that. But the, I mean, the other part of it, too, is, and I, I think we, we've talked about this before, it's like, well, if you're looking at, you know, at the very least, like, who are the guys you can expect to be available at the deadline, um, you know, who are going to be in potential impact hitters, what does that look like right now? With a free agent class next year for hitters is barren. It's just Shohei Otani. Ian Happ just signed an extension with the with the Cubs. You know, that was a, a popular Yankees fan target. Brian Reynolds just signed his extension with the Pirates. I think that was probably the guy... Most everyone would have expected to be moved this deadline, assuming that the Pirates weren't in it. And let's be entirely honest, the Pirates are probably... I love the Pirates. I love what they're doing. I just don't think they're a, you know, a deep contender. I think they're one of those teams that's going to kind of sputter out a little toward the end. But regardless, you're not... you know, There, there is not, at the very least, an immediate obvious guy on the trade market, I think. When you look at uh, either free agents to be or you know, tearing teardown teams looking to move a guy where you can feel like, oh, we're going to get something quality out of this. I mean, I think at this point you're looking at, what, like Will Myers? Jock Peterson? I actually, I think Jock Peterson would actually be a great addition for the Yankees, particularly with the short porch, but there's just not, you know, th- those are, I, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. There's a lot of season to go. I just think if you're a Yankees fan, you're probably not feeling super great about how kind of thin this lineup feels right now, and that all it took was one injury to Giancarlo Stanton to take this Yankees lineup from dangerous to, oh, this is not a lot of fun right now. I also can see just like Severino and Rodon being back and then be, just winning a bunch of games with some really Yeah, and that's, and that, I, I think the reality is that the Yankees were always kind of primed to be the team that pitching wins for them because yeah. of the fact that they have Cole, Severino, uh, Rodon. When healthy, they'll have Cole, Rodon, Severino, Nestor Cortez, and we'll see we, you know we'll see who that fifth stop maybe domingo but maybe, maybe, domingo Herman, options, yeah. maybe clark schmidt maybe uh hopefully not clark schmidt based on what probably seen, not clark schmidt based on the way he's pitched but you know they, they do have your options. fifth guy and just like that's yeah, you can it's a good spot that. to be in yeah. you can absolutely live with that on the flip side though the flippity flop john taylor as we wrap up here on this edition of take graphs here on the chase podcast uh the pittsburgh pirates john they paid they paid somebody Brad they gave Reynolds got paid the biggest contract they've ever handed out topping the one they gave to jason kendall like 25 years ago that's incredible i know um, isn't it isn't it something 
it only took Brian like demanding he not be traded for like two and a half years. It it's took just... him demanding not to be traded and then ha- hitting like 900 to start the season for mm-hmm. the Pirates to be like, okay, fine, I guess you're worth yeah. keeping around. No, it's it's really good what for Pittsburgh. What a McNutt situation. It's McNutty. <laughs> it's Pittsburgh. It is, boy, Pirates fans, they're, they're I the ones I say something who very not family friendly here. I was about to do it. <laughs> do it and now it's ruined. You know, I was going to be like... Yeah, I'll, I'll spare the listeners out there, but it's this is it's. I mean, no bones about it. This is a really good thing for Pittsburgh, mm. and, and not just in what it does in keeping Reynolds around. Who I, you know, I don't think it's anyone's idea of a franchise player, but is certainly a really good corner outfielder. Um, although is I think he's been playing center in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Regardless, a really good outfielder. Nate McLeod is somewhere smiling. Yeah. <laughs> um, just the pure <laughs> optics of it of just being like, for once, we're keeping the dude. Mm-hmm. For once, we are keeping, we are going to build around the guy. For what, like for, I think it's, it, it almost feels fitting that this happens the year Andrew McCutcheon comes back because I think that was really the last time the Pirates made that investment in. We're, mm. we're giving this guy the money he deserves, and then they let him, and then they traded him away anyway, like six years later. But purely for the, I mean, again, I, I don't think this Pirates team ultimately is a contender, you know, and I, I don't feel like that's a crazy thing to say, like. You know, I know they're off to a really, really good start. They're well, contender the in what Central. context? I don't think that they're going to be. You know, I don't think they're going to win the division. But could you see them in the division race, kind of a la Baltimore last year? Come I think August. so. I, when I, I guess I should say when I say contender, I mean I don't think they're a realistic playoff team, and I don't think they're a World Series contender. But I do think that yes, they are capable of staying in the NL Central race and mm. staying in the NL Wild Card race. Because at the very least, it does look like there's something fundamentally different about what Pittsburgh yeah. is doing. This doesn't feel like just kind of a fluky hot start. I think it is for some guys, like a, a Connor Joe has a batting average on balls in play of like 450. That mm. That's not going to keep up. You never but, know. <laughs> you never know if he might just turn into the modern day version of Rogers Hornsby, but without all the racism. It's would... <laughs> a lot of races back in uh, early 20th century baseball. Um, that's in, true. in baseball the whole time. But... There are some good signs in Pittsburgh. I think what they, especially when you look at what they've done with their pitchers in how Mitch Keller looks and how Rancy Contreras looks and how Johan Oviedo looks and how that bullpen has been so good for them so far. I think there's something legitimate there in terms of I can now see this team being a 500-ish team, you know, Mm. barring something going absolutely nuts. And again, it's Pittsburgh. Not a whole lot of depth, you know, obviously without O'Neill Cruz, that lowers the ceiling. Um you know, and this is obviously a team that, even with having paid Brian Reynolds, is not going to be, I think, out there at the deadline making big uh, blockbuster deals. Is not going to be out there this winter, like going, you know, bidding up on Shohei Otani. Although, it'd be really funny if they did. But just purely by the optics of we're off to a great start, the fans are invested, or at least getting, or at least feeling like, hey, there might be something here. We we might have something at least decent to watch mm-hmm. for the rest of the season. You know. That's nice. And, the, and they're young guys involved, too. It's not just like, oh, we, we signed a bunch of crappy veterans and they're getting off to a weird good start. No, this is guys you know are going to be there for the long term in Reynolds, in Jack Sawinski, in Oviedo, in uh, eventually, once he gets healthy again, in O'Neill Cruz. You know, those are those are the guys you feel good about going forward. So I, I, I like a move a lot for Pittsburgh. I think it had to be done both on an on the field level and just for a pure optics franchise level. You know, I, I don't think this signals any great sea change in the way the Pirates operate. I don't think, again, Bob Nutting is suddenly going to start throwing out, you know, $100 million contracts on the regular. No. I no. think this is just them correctly reading the tea leaves and going, we need to do this or else the fan base might literally burn the burn the place to the ground. So, 
on that in that way, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as a cynical ploy by ownership to keep the fans entertained while not really actually changing anything about the franchise itself. Or the more optimistic view of, well, at least they recognize that it, it is a good idea to keep good players around and to pay them appropriately. That's a step forward. Maybe and they have young players a, that are fun. Like, hey, pay Brian Hayes now. There's pay a really good farm system Cruz. in place there. Like, they're... There's I a mean, good farm. There is. There are reasons to be optimistic in Pittsburgh, and that is and you something. Know what helps? The NL Central sucks. The NL so, Central is bad. It's so a there's really bad... a path to them being like. I mean, the, the Cardinals are nine and fifteen. Yeah. You know the the Reds the are. The Cubs they're... aren't seriously going for it. The Brewers don't ever want to win the division. No, but... it, the Brewers and another one of those teams that isn't suddenly going to start going making blockbuster yeah. deals or handing out tons of big money either. Like they'll give you Woodruff. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Brandon Woodruff's broken shoulder. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's what if more, more important I think than anything else is that if you're a Pirates fan between Reynolds, the start of the season, the farm system, a, a, a bunch of stuff, you actually can feel like there's some optimism going forward for this franchise. For the first time in what feels like probably the Halcyon McCutcheon days, you know, this is this is a franchise that looks like it's at least turning itself in the right direction, even if in the process of doing so, you can kind of still see the outlines of. Well, but it's only going to be on Bob Nutting's particular terms, which is to say, you got your $100 million contract, don't get greedy. We ain't doing this again for a bit, you know? This is still the same guy who, when the offseason comes, or the next time he decides to to answer a reporter's phone call, is still going to complain about the economics of the game being rigged against the Pirates and small market teams and blah, 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 despite the fact he's a literal billionaire. Like, it doesn't change the long-term direction of the Pirates, I would say, when it comes to that stuff. But it is something that you can feel good about, and I think that does signal that at the very least, they are willing to take advantage of a moment when it's there. Which I think is also important, because if there is one thing that really defined that run in the mid-2010s, when they, you know, when they came so close to, you know, they lost the wildcard game twice, when they did win the, when they, you know, when they beat the Reds in the wildcard round, or in the wildcard game, rather, Mm -hmm. that they just never made that they never took that next step. They never got those guys to push them over the edge, to turn them from a really good 96-win team into a juggernaut 102-win team, you know? And, you know, obviously you can't go back and undo that. And again, I don't think Reynolds is a sign that suddenly that's going to be the new day in Pittsburgh. But I, again, this is a team that stopped trying, essentially, for like five years. It's good to see them start trying again. For sure. And best stadium in the NL. Just a great stadium. I really, if you've not I been to play PNC Park... Again. Yeah. If you've never been to PNC Park, go, especially now that the Pirates are actually fun and worth watching. A uh, great view, a great layout, great food, cheap. Uh, get your big Iron City tall boy, get yourself some nice seats, stare out at the Pittsburgh skyline, you know, walk across the bridge to and from the game. Really fun experience. Can't recommend PNC Park as a, as a game day experience enough. There you go. John Taylor. Fangraphs.com. Go subscribe if you have not already done so. Uh all that good stuff all kinds of great content uh their players having a weird one and you can find out which player is having a weird one by going to fangraphs.com right now and reading i, I do i do love that that's one of our headlines is player name here is having a weird one uh mm-hmm. shouts to michael bauman for that one that's a good tease it's a good tease go read that's it a good tease. Uh, uh while we're on fangraphs i'd also like yeah. to shout out uh new merchandise available on the site through our partnership with breaking tea mm-hmm. folks who make pretty much every mlb player in team t-shirt uh or at least the non like li- like literal team ones mm. uh new t-shirts just dropped with fangraphs logo fangraphs and script and very cool limited edition run of fangraphs champion mesh shorts for the spring and summer so you can show off your pasty white calves 
to anyone who wants to see them. We got more go. cool new merch coming uh, that I'm really excited about. The folks at Breaking Tea have done some really good stuff. So check that out. We will have, we'll have a post about it tomorrow. You can go to Breaking Tea right now. Go to breakingtea.com slash fangraphs, I believe is the link, for the entire Fangraphs merchandise collection. All very cool stuff there. Highly recommend it if you are a nerd who needs clothing. There you go. John Taylor, always a pleasure, my friend, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. This is Ben Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Chase, I think I'm going to hear more about you. I really do. I think you've got a way about you, but you're interviewing, mm-hmm. you're, um, pleasantness, you're smart. So I think I'm going to hear big things about you. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah.